0: You can't be too cool to pick up the phone and call somebody. You have to be willing to face rejection. If you're not willing to face rejection from a prospect, you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. You got to just go for it. Put yourself out there. Let them know that you really want their business because that's what it takes, especially for a new company with a new concept.
1: Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White and our next guest is senior executive and experienced CEO, Ted Teal. Ted is the former CEO of Touchdown, a tech company focused on improving the quality of life for seniors. In this podcast, Ted and I discuss the future of tech and what he has learned from almost 20 years of experience as CEO or president of high growth technology companies in various industries. I'm excited to have Ted with us today. Ted, thank you for joining me today on InFactor.
0: Well, it is a pleasure, Rebecca. And I'm really impressed with what you've done with this podcast. And the timing is perfect with the pandemic the fact that you can continue to educate people and provide food for thought, even if you can't meet with them face to face. So, Kudos to you.
1: Thank you, Ted. I really appreciate that. And it's been kind of a lifesaver for me as well because it's kept me connected to people and it's really been fun to do. And and I'm really excited to have you today. We've talked a little. You're new to Tampa, Florida, and we've met virtually a few times, and I've heard a little bit of your story, but I wonder if you could start by telling our listeners a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey. How did you get to be CEO of and president of several tech companies?
0: Well, I've a lot of entrepreneurship in my family and that made a difference and you know my first entrepreneurial experience was selling comic books out of my little red wagon when I was you know 5 years old. Perfect. And, <laughs> and I learned a lot from that and by the time I got to college my dad and I went to Harvard College and you know back in the day it was very expensive not anywhere near as expensive as it is today but My dad, in his wisdom, asked me to pay for half. He felt that if I had skin in the game, that I would take it more seriously. And Mm -hmm. So I went to my first year, and it was great, and then decided to take a year off and travel to the South Pacific and live on $5 a day, and you go to places like Tahiti and New Zealand and Australia and Fiji and Hawaii. It was an amazing, amazing year. I When I was over there, I kept thinking about, how am I going to pay for college? The summer before, I actually sold books door-to-door, which was a wonderful experience for a company called the Southwestern Company. And I learned a lot about sales from that experience. But I kept thinking, how am I going to pay for college? And so I, I was hitchhiking in Western Samoa, and I got picked up by a Turkish guy with a truck And in the back he had a whole bunch of Turkish carpets and he was selling them to the Samoans. And I thought, okay, if this guy can import Turkish carpets to Western Samoa and American Samoa, I could bring back jewelry from Samoa in the South Pacific to America. And so I did, I started importing jewelry under the name Tahiti Ted and that's how I paid my end. that's how I paid for the last three years of college is by doing that. It was a great experience doing that. I made a lot of money and learned a lot about, you know, importing things and about business in general. And then I went back to college and finished college and at the time everybody was talking about the computer and the personal computer and it was kind of it was all the rage. It was actually the person of the year for Time Magazine that year.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so I decided that the best way I could get experience is to go into the computer industry and sales. And so I did that for a few years, software and computers, and then went to Harvard Business School. And after, so ever since then, I've been in the technology business in various startups and technology companies sometimes I've been a founder and sometimes I've been part of the founding team. And sometimes I've been the professional CEO that took over after the founder was looking for new energy to come in. But in all cases, I've always been a startup entrepreneurial kind of guy, and I absolutely love it.
1: Now, did you grow up in that kind of family? You said, I think you said earlier, was your yeah, my father? grandfather.
0: Your grandfather? On my mother's side, my grandfather was an entrepreneur. You know, he was a real estate tycoon, you know. Uh On my father's side, my my grandfather was an academic, but he was a marketing professor. He became the dean of Harvard Business School. So I kind of have the academic side of my family and the entrepreneurial side of my family. Right,
1: right. So you came into tech, not so much with a tech background, but more of a sales background. Is that correct?
0: Right. And at the time, I knew that one of the interesting things about technology is you can build it once and sell it many times. Mm-hmm. I really like that. You, mm-hmm. know, you create a product and particularly in the software business where you don't have many variable costs, you can create software or software as a service and then sell it again and sell it again. Of course, the proper term is license when it comes to software. But the basic idea is if you can meet somebody's needs you could make a lot of money because you don't have to put as much human labor into each individual sale.
1: Mm-hmm. Now with Touchdown, which was, I think, your most recent business, and you sold that, I think, not too long ago, right? A few months ago, right. maybe.
0: I took over Touchdown about six years ago. And two years ago, I sold it to a great company called Unigest. Touchdown is a technology company to make life better for seniors. Mm-hmm. and when I took it over, it had some big advantages, but it, you know, it wasn't doing great financially, and we turned it around. We leveraged all the advantages that were there when I took over, built a great culture, made it you know, very nicely profitable, and sold it uh, to a company that was trying to get into the technology company that had similar values that was trying to get into senior living. hmm And it was wonderful. All the employees had stock options and it was a a big payoff for them. And and I stayed a year after we sold the company and then left at the end of March. Mm -hmm. And since then, my wife and I made the decision that we really didn't like, I didn't want to get into it because I was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is a terrific place, but the weather just isn't as nice. And you don't have beaches that you have here.
1: Right. (laughs) So
0: uh, we made the decision that I didn't want to do another company in Pittsburgh. I wanted to do it here. And the reason why we decided to do Tampa Bay is because great weather, the water, you know, there's water everywhere, which is terrific. But also it is a growing and thriving technology community. And it's a place in non-virus times where there's a lot of culture and there's a lot of sports. And so it fit us in that respect. It checked all the boxes. We didn't have any relatives here, but we really felt a connection. And in January, we took a look at the Paso Grill area. We came and stayed here in St. Pete Beach, and we fell in love with it and moved down here in May.
1: Yeah, I've been fortunate because I've been here 10 years now, and I can't believe that but I came for a lot of the reasons you did too. I happen to have a mom down here at the time, but I've been fortunate enough to see the growth of the ecosystem, the tech ecosystem and the entrepreneurial ecosystem. So I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you're part of it. So and, and yeah. I'm
0: excited to do whatever I can to do to help your entrepreneurship center at the University of Tampa. And I'm also very impressed with the Tampa Bay Wave and have been you know, working with them as well. So there's there's a foundation here for entrepreneurship, which is very impressive and passionate people. And you know, in addition to actually doing work to you know, earn a living and, and all of that, certainly want to help the local entrepreneurial ecosystem.
1: Yeah, a lot of vibrancy here. Now you've been in tech for over twenty years. I'd you've say a seen... hundred
0: years, but yeah,
1: <laughs> it feels like a hundred probably. And you've seen a lot of change and a lot of you know acceptance of tech. It's interesting. You were in the senior space with tech, and and that I think would be really fun and cool. But over the last six months, with the outbreak of the pandemic, COVID nineteen. What I found interesting is that we've seen sort of the acceptance of technology in a way we've never seen it before. Certainly, it hasn't been without some challenges. As an educator, back in March, we went fully online, as did most of the, well, virtually. I know all the schools in Florida and most of them around the U.S. and many around the world, And, you know, we still have a lot to learn in ed tech, but we've seen the acceptance of work at home, I think, in a way that we never have before. So could you talk a little bit about what you see and how you expect this all to, the tech situation to play out post-COVID when we ever get there?
0: (laughs) Well, whenever you have that question, you know, hopefully we will figure out how to handle it. But whenever you have a major disruption in society, For example, the great recession, a lot of companies came out of that new companies Mm
1: -hmm. came out
0: of that 2008 great recession. And this is an opportunity. You know, there's a new equilibrium that will form and new companies will be created to fill the gap. I mean, certainly the biggest example now is Zoom, which was existing, but the pandemic has certainly helped their business to take off. Mm -hmm. So some people, entrepreneurial people are finding a way to prosper during the pandemic you know, and others won't. And you know. so it's all about adaptability right now. So, you know, I think in society, the technology revolution has caused people and also the internationalization of the global workforce has caused people to need to adapt. And some people are doing it better than others. And there's a lot of people that are experiencing a lot of pain. But there is a premium, the entrepreneurs that can see the, the opportunities and adapt. My current business right now, I'm the CEO of a technology company that I just joined a couple months ago called Kaleidoscope. And it's in the, the dental and uh, orthodontic field,
1: mm-hmm. which
0: is very different from senior living, but the product is similar. Mm-hmm. So, so there's, there's lessons there. But what's happening in the medical field that's interesting is that virtual consultations. Mm-hmm. You have virtual consultation software that has evolved and you know, that's going to certainly play a bigger role. And so technology to solve problems. And right now, the technology that people need is work from home technology. For example, how can you be productive if you're in sales, for example, working from home? Or if you're a company that now has salespeople working from home, how can you do a better job of managing them? So there's a million different opportunities that all of a sudden out of thin air because of this pandemic and the length of it will emerge. And you know, so some of them will become big companies. My company is, for example, working on integrating our technology with the virtual consultation so that you can display marketing messages to people while they're waiting for their doctor to show up. And mm-hmm. so, you know, because you have now you have virtual waiting rooms. So all of that was not a requirement a year ago, right? And now all of a sudden, it's a requirement now. We don't know what's gonna happen post-pandemic, but I do think the work from home is going to accelerate. And like our company now is going to be 100%, at least for the foreseeable future, a work from home company, which I call distributed. It's a distributed company because mm-hmm. there are people distributed all over the world, actually. So, you know, that's something that probably would have been harder to do six months ago. It was right. just the paradigm, you gotta have an office. Like touchdown, we had a traditional office where people went to. And as we talked about the other day, we had a culture where people would bring their dogs and and it was really a fun culture. So if you're in the virtual world or distributed world, how do you create a great culture if you don't have an office? Like you know, there's all sorts of interesting problems that the virus, you know, opportunities for entrepreneurs that the virus has created.
1: Right. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? You know, my daughter works for a company and they've pretty much been told that they won't be coming back until... January of 2021, won't be coming back to the office. And she's okay with that, the kind of work she does, she can be productive. But you're right, you know, there's a lot of things like trust and team building and things that most of our methodology is built around human interaction, being together. I know for me personally, I've been able to be productive with a lot of people but they were people that I knew before and that I'd already built a relationship with. So, you know, building a relationship newly online could be challenging and we're going to need some people it's to tough. think deeply about that.
0: Things like zoom help because at least, you know, we respond to the faces and Right. zoom helps. But here's another opportunity that somebody could take advantage of. You know, right now there's so many moms in particular, but parents, that have kids at home and they're trying to do their job right and with the kids at home and how can you do that like is there some technology that could facilitate that that's now an urgent requirement Mm -hmm. i have a daughter that's a professor and she's got two kids two girls young and she's really worried like how is she going to be able to even doing zoom classes for her students while also taking care of her girls
1: how do you do that yes
0: so somebody might solve that problem, you know, right. and make $50 million by doing it. So yeah. somebody out there, if you may just make $50 million, then make sure you give a bunch of it to the University of Tampa. <laughs> <Entrepreneurship>. <laughs> but
1: yeah, because they got the idea from this, right? Thank you, yeah. Ted. <laughs> Appreciate that. That's very generous of you. So hopefully there are some young people or people of any age really out there listening that have, that are getting some ideas from this. And I have students all the time that are saying, you know, I know I want to do something in tech, but I really don't know how to get started. I don't know what I should do. You know, I'm going to get my degree, but I'm probably not ready. Do you have some suggestions for anybody who wants to go into the tech space? What are some of the things they should know about working in tech.
0: Well, I think that you know certainly when you come up with an idea you have to find some way to validate the idea. And there's nothing like talking to potential customers and asking them if we build this will you buy it. And a lot of times you can do it if you say I'm doing market research, you know people are, you know they're less defensive when you're saying I'm thinking of doing something would that be something that you would buy and how much would you pay for it? So being able to get real insights from potential customers is very, very important. I think another thing is you can't fall too much in love with your idea. And most of the time, certainly every business I've been involved with, the idea at the beginning isn't the idea at the end. It evolves. Right. I think one of the important things, and it's interesting because there are people that will tell you that you will fail, right? And so you can't let that stop you but you do have to get in the habit of listening. You know, As a CEO, I've always had a rule that no one's allowed to be defensive, especially me, because people will come up to me with ideas or comments or feedback, and you don't have to do everything, but the most important thing is to listen to it and absorb it and let it sink in without reacting to it defensively because people will give you good ideas when you're an entrepreneur, But I think if you are, the example you mentioned, a young person that doesn't have kids yet, for example, it's really a good time to try to start something because, you know, if you fail, you've learned something, right? And you can apply that to the next situation. Certainly, it's important to keep your overhead down early on. And, you know, because whatever money you have, you don't want to run out. And so that's very important as well. Another thing that, you and i talked about the other day you know i've sat in for many years on these where people pitch you know they'll do a 3 minute pitch uh-huh. of their idea
1: uh-huh.
0: and so often people spend so much time talking about what it is and what the world needs why the world needs it and they spend very little time on how they're going to sell it and that's not just sales it's marketing you know marketing is one to many and sales is one to one and marketing helps you identify people that are interested and sales actually converts them into customers. And what I find is people, you know, they think, oh, yeah, we're going to hire a sales team, and that's their go-to-market strategy. You have to think about it much more deeply. And one of the ways to do that is to pick a a test group of prospects. You're going to try to sell the city of Tampa, right, or you're going to sell this smaller group subset of 100 people, and you're going to do it yourself, and you're going to learn a lot. And so that's like, that's phase one, that you personally do it before you start hiring salespeople, you personally do it hmm. and you you get bloodied a bit, uh-huh. but you learn, you get insights. So thinking about the go-to-market and testing it is very important for an entrepreneur.
1: I really like your thoughts there that it's really important that the entrepreneur actually get out there and talk to customers because... We get people all the time that come in and say, can you have students write a business plan for us? And I say to them, sure, but the big part of the value of preparing a business plan is what you learn and the insights you get and the process. So, you know, it's certainly somebody can polish it up, but I like your insight there that it's important that the entrepreneur is the one in the earliest stages out there talking and getting the feedback.
0: So one thing that's usually missing is the go-to-market. Another is the accounting, the finance side of the equation, Mm -hmm. really understanding how the numbers work, you the revenues and expenses and gross margin and things like that. You can buy or you can go online and get a quick course on accounting, but things like that are really, really important. And if you're talking to investors, particularly the sophisticated investors like venture capitalists, They look at your business and they look at certain critical ratios, like the lifetime value of a customer divided by the cost of acquiring that customer. And if they don't like that ratio, they're not going to invest. So things like that, really understanding the ratios and the metrics that if you need investors, if you don't need investors, that's a good thing. But if you actually need investors, you got to understand how they think and what's important to them. And. Certainly, the thing I mentioned earlier, go to market is really important to them. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that's important are the financials, the metrics. You know, If they invest, you know, what kind of return are they likely to get? And also that those critical ratios like the lifetime value of a customer divided by the cost of acquiring that customer. Mm-hmm. What they'll do is if they find that you can acquire a customer fairly inexpensively and they have a, a long value they'll put money in just to build up your sales team, right, to help you grow because they feel you can replicate your early success because the metrics are good. On the other hand, you may have some success, but if you spent so much money to acquire those customers, you know, they'll look at it and say it's not worth investing because it just costs you too much money to get incremental customers.
1: So, you know, let's dive into that a little bit more, Ted, because I think that's really, really important. And it's an area that most new entrepreneurs that I've worked with and student entrepreneurs struggle with trying to understand and predict or project what it's going to cost them to acquire a customer. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Well, the first thing, what we talked about earlier, doing it yourself for a while and getting bloody. You know, your whole goal is to create a repeatable process, a repeatable marketing and sales process. So if you start with a smaller group of people, a hundred prospects, and you do it yourself and you market to them, and you and you try something, you try email, you try a letter, you send them a package, whatever, you invite them to a webinar, whatever it is on the marketing side, and then you follow up yourself on the sales side, you will learn what works. And that process is what you will use as the basis for your life, your cost of customer acquisition, because it's something that you've tried on a small scale and you've learned. And again, I talk about being bloody, bloody. You know, part of the entrepreneurship is like getting beat up and then standing up, dusting yourself off and marching forward. But you got to learn from that experience. And by testing it out on a small group, And building the concept, well, here's how we're going to market. We're going to buy lists, or we're going to do this, or we're going to do that. And then we're going to do this. We'll send them something. It doesn't have to be email because we all get millions of emails. And it could be a package. It could be a gift, depending on the value of your product, right? And then, you know, what's the experience on that? And when you follow up, you call them on the phone. The other thing that's really important, I always talk about you got to burn your cool card (laughs) What I mean by that, and that's something I learned from the Southwestern company years ago, you can't be too cool to pick up the phone and call somebody. You have to be willing to face rejection. If you're not willing to face rejection from a prospect, you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. You got to just go for it. Put yourself out there. Let them know that you really want their business because that's what it takes, especially for a new company with a new concept. the other interesting point, there's also something that I learned from one of my mentors called the goodness factor. And the goodness factor is if you have a new product in an existing market, you either have to be perceived, and the perception is everything, as three times better or one-third the cost. Mm
1: -hmm. So
0: in its perception, it may not really be one-third the cost, but it has to be either a lot less expensive and just as good. Or much better and the same cost or slightly better and if you could make it the same cost as the existing players if you can find a way to make it the same cost so all somebody's thinking about is oh this is much better and it's the same cost that makes it easier for you
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense and you're right especially when you're in sales let's move into sales just a little bit because you started Got your feet wet as an entrepreneur with your comic books, I think it was, and then your jewelry. And I know early in your career, you, well, all throughout your career, you've gotten lots of accolades, but you ranked number one out of 77 salespeople for enterprise software company, Applied Data Research, I think it was.
0: Right. That was the the first software company in the world, actually.
1: Oh, wow. Uh, And you worked for them.
0: Well, I worked for the world's first software company, actually long after they started but i was still working for them and i was number one and the reason why i was able to be number one is i went after a big customer which was the u.s air force and i sold them a very big deal and the way i was able to sell them a very big deal is i was able to show them the return on investment and that's another lesson that i think is really important rebecca whether you're an entrepreneur starting a company Or if you're a salesperson selling, it's really beneficial if you can show your customer in dollars and cents how much money they're going to save or how much money they're going to make by using your product. In order to do that, you have to have assumptions and you have to show your math. But if you can show your math and convince somebody that they can make a billion dollars by using your product or a million or if they can save five million dollars using your product. $5 $5 million a year or whatever it is. And if they believe that, that makes an enormous difference. And in order to do that, you have to be able to look at your customer from their perspective, walk in their shoes. How is your product going to save them money or make them money? And a lot of times that means asking them questions and saying something like, listen, I really want to work on a proposal for you, but in order to do that, it's really important for me to ask some questions about your business that of course I'll keep confidential. And sometimes you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement, but you ask questions about whatever the critical metrics are for their business, things that cost them money or make them money. Then you put it together into a spreadsheet and show why your product makes them money. Now in the consumer realm, it's more about improving the quality of their life. You know, the ROI could be It could be saving money for consumers, but it also could be making their life easier right, or making their life better or making them look 10 years younger
1: or whatever it is. But
0: in all cases, it's an ROI, return on investment. And a good salesperson is using that throughout the process, even before you actually get the numbers about their business or them as individuals. You can say that a typical customer will get this benefit and be able to show them that. And if you say, why was I the number one salesperson in my company? It was because I was able to show my customer why they could, if they spent millions of dollars with me, they would save tens of millions of dollars.
1: Yeah. So when you were,
0: yeah, it
1: makes a ton of sense. And I think a lot of times, I know when I first came out of college, my first job offer was in sales and it wasn't really what I wanted to do, but I learned over time and I've learned over my life that I'm selling constantly in everything I've done, even in academics. And it's such great skill to develop and so I have two questions. One, let me ask them together. One, would you recommend sales as a pathway to get prepared for entrepreneurship? And two, how did you sell jewelry? What was the strategy for selling jewelry? And
0: Well, I actually sold it on the National Mall, basically below the U.S. Capitol to tourists. So you
1: went to and, tourists, yeah.
0: Yeah, I had tourists in Washington, D.C., because I was selling jewelry from the South Pacific. The Washington Post actually wrote an article about me, and I got a lot of attention for doing it. But it was an amazingly wonderful experience dealing with you know all the tourists coming to D.C. But I do think, to your other question, going into sales is very helpful. I mean, The best way to become an entrepreneur, probably, is to get a computer science degree or something like that, or some sort of technical understanding or science. STEM right kind of thing because then you can actually create the product yourself and then you just have to learn. You know, I am mentoring a terrific entrepreneur right now who's got the technical background, but she went and did a sales boot camp, which is really interesting that she went through a sales boot camp to kind of give her that part of the experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think certainly if you're an engineer and you're starting a company getting exposed to both marketing and sales and really understanding the difference, you know, market, I always talk about it like in a, in a war analogy, marketing is the air war and sales is the ground war. Marketing prepares the battlefield and gets people, identifies people that are interested and in sales goes and turns them into customers. So you really need to understand both. Mm-hmm. But you know, if someone is interested in getting a sales background joining a company that has a good sales training program is really important. And I would say having a boss that cares about you and, and is a mentor to you is ideal.
1: Yeah, that's great advice. So while you were at Touchdown, the company received a number of awards and I know it had a pretty special culture. Let's talk a little bit about Culture and culture in tech companies. What kind of culture did you have there at Touchdown? And do you have some thoughts on what works and what well, doesn't?
0: I think I do. have a lot of thoughts. And, and a lot of these are, I have sayings like mutual trust and respect that everybody in the company gives everybody the benefit of the doubt that they have the good of the company at heart. And a key thing, I talk about candor with empathy, that being honest with each other but have empathy for who they are and you know, where they are in their lives. And I think that's very important. And having a culture where you listen to people, I, I mentioned that before,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that nobody's allowed to be defensive, but if people feel like they're being listened to and they actually see ideas that they've had that get implemented, that really makes a big difference. And I also think things like stock options in an entrepreneurial company are very important. That people see the upside in terms of getting some sort of equity return. And right. Clearly, so at my company, touchdown, everybody had stock options, and that was really everybody pre-sale. Obviously, you know, it's it was a motivator. But I think the bigger motivator was the culture that we had—a culture where, you know, it was fun. You know, we had something once a month. We had something called Beer Thursday, where we stopped working at three o'clock on Thursday, and we played games and organized the games, rotated around the company. So during the Olympics, we had a Touchdown Olympics where we had a biathlon and we had a parade of nations. And when the U.S. Open was a mile away at Oakmont Country Club, we turned our office into a a golf course. And so we, we, we had fun every month and, you know, we spread it around and We had a bunch of passionate young people and some older people like me that also were very, very passionate as well. And we had lots of dogs. We had dogs. Some people brought their dogs every day and they had personalities and they were part of the company. So all of that was important. Plus, very, very important, listening to people and not being defensive. And I think one of the things that happens to entrepreneurial companies is at the very, very beginning things are happening really fast, but everybody knows what's going on because you're a group of three or four. And then when you grow, a lot of times people feel like they don't know what's going on. And I think that is very important, whether it's a weekly update newsletter that you know shares the financials or letting people in on what's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, they really appreciate knowing what's happening, company meetings that are interactive, Where you allow people to ask questions. And I do think asking questions in advance is good because a lot of times people are shy at a company meeting in front of a whole bunch of others. But you know, all those things kind of come together. The meaningful mission, I think certainly when people talk about millennials, one of the wonderful things about the millennial generation is this need for purpose. And Mm -hmm. certainly, you know, us older folks, you know, we care about mission as well. But I think It's front and center for a lot of millennials being involved with the company. So Touchdown makes life better for seniors that live in senior living communities. That's a noble and wonderful mission. And it was very important to a lot of people, in addition to the culture of having fun and listening to people and all of that. So all of that combined creates a great culture. But communication is clearly a big factor
1: in that. Yeah. That sounds like a great place to work and I'm guessing you didn't have a high degree of turnover when people were happy and having fun and felt a, a sense of purpose with their work.
0: That's correct if that's happening you know people there's statistics about the high percentage of people that aren't engaged with their jobs which to me is so sad that you know why not leave if you're not engaged but some people feel trapped they can't leave for one reason or another but You know, my goal, and it's never 100% no matter who you are. You know, my goal was to sincerely try to have it 100% of people that are engaged. And I I guarantee you that I I wasn't successful in that, but I made a sincere effort to accomplish that. And, And so that's another part of a great culture, I think, is actually caring about people. Yeah. Actually caring. For me, it's about. The learning experience that they're getting out of it. You know, one of the questions that I always like to ask is, What did you learn from that? So, if I happen to run into somebody that listened to this, I'm probably going to say, What did you learn? Right? Was there anything, like, if there was one thing that stood out, what was it? And of course, it's never as much as you wish they learned, right? The, right. Because right. people only retain so much, right? But I'm always asking that because I do care about people's part of the deal is you give, when you hire somebody, part of the deal is you give them salary, right? And that's critical. But another part of the deal is you give them an opportunity to learn and you focus on that. Like, how can I help this person learn? And part of that is also if they have a career goal, what is it? Because if I know what somebody's career goal is, And they trust me enough to tell me whatever it is, then I can help to whatever extent possible with the job, help them learn what they want to learn in addition to serving the company and the customers and the shareholders. And that's important for the culture, too, because I think if it was just money, you know, people can, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to go someplace else.
1: Right, right, right. right. You know, as an educator, I love your philosophy about learning and, you know, it is about lifelong learning. And sometimes when you ask people what they've learned, you can be surprised because sometimes they pick up on something that you don't really expect also, which is pretty cool, I think, when that happens.
0: It really is. So, you know, it's very gratifying when I ask that question because a lot of times they do internalize great things and you, you can have a impact. Like I got an email or a LinkedIn message a couple years ago from somebody that worked for me 20 years earlier. that I hadn't really talked too much since. And she just wanted to tell me that the impact I had on her entire career because of some of the things I said to her years ago. And there's nothing more gratifying than that.
1: I agree with that. So we talked a little bit about resilience, really, when you were talking about selling. And you have to be able to get back up and brush yourself off. That's a topic that's of special interest to me and something that I've been studying for a few years. And I'm really interested in asking, we talk about the fact that failure is often a part of this process of success. So have you experienced failure? Have you experienced, I know you've experienced rejection if you've been in sales, but have you experienced times when you were close to giving up or on the verge of really, you know, saying that I've had enough and then figured out a way around that? And if so, do you have any suggestions for our listeners about preparing themselves and, and being ready for the inevitable rejection and failure and challenge that entrepreneurship can bring? Well,
0: you know, I do think that you know, sometimes, and it certainly happened to me, where you have a company that doesn't do as well as you wanted it to do. Right, or you, know, you don't get the outcome that you want. Right. And that has definitely happened to me two companies ago. But what I did is I took a hell of a learning experience out of that, and I took it to Touchdown, and we, you know, we hit a home run. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was wonderful. But either way, both of them were equally good learning experiences. Mm-hmm. And if you have the attitude that everything is a learning experience, everything is about growth and development, and you take the good with the bad and you really learn from it. That makes it a lot easier. And you keep your head up because, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that don't make it. Take Walt Disney, this classic story. You know, I think he went bankrupt as a young man. Mm-hmm. And then he became Walt Disney, right? And there's millions of stories like that. You know, the key is to not give up and not blame others, right? Learn from your experience. You know, we all make mistakes. I made mistakes. A touchdown. I made mistakes yesterday. I made mistakes 10 years ago. We all make mistakes. The key is to learn from them.
1: Yeah, I think that's good advice. And I like that you included don't blame others because when we blame others, we don't get the chance really to learn in the same way we do as when we take responsibility for it.
0: Yeah, we're all human. We're all flawed. But I do think some of us are, are better at, at learning. And absorbing information and absorbing learning experiences. And part of that is honestly being able to take feedback without being defensive.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Allow somebody to tell like allow somebody to tell you, for example, as a CEO, there have been times where people got mad at me and didn't tell me and they told me six months later, right? Or whatever. And it was a tragedy because they held it in that whole time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, you have to be able to you know, if somebody doesn't is mad at me or thinks I did the wrong thing. Or you know again, in complete failure or whatever, you know you you've got to be able to really think about what happened, and that means listening to other people's opinion. You don't have to agree with them. what you have to do is sit back and absorb it. And when you're a CEO, then you know you know every day you think you're doing something well and somebody's going to come in your office and throw something at you, if you really learn just to absorb it, and by the way, I would never say I did that 100% of the time perfectly. You know, I'm human and I'm flawed. But it was my theory that I'm going to absorb it and I'm going to react and I'm not going to woe is me. And I might ask clarifying questions, but none of the clarifying questions are allowed to be defensive in nature. And so that's how you learn. You absorb that and you sit with it. And sometimes internally you fight with it. but the first key is to let it come in, whether it's from, you know, an employee or, or a customer or somebody else. Just let it come in. And by the way, as a tactic, it's a much better tactic anyway, because if somebody's unhappy and you react defensively, that increases their unhappiness. So not only is it good for you as a leader to be in terms of your own leadership style and learning, right? But it's also good in terms of your relationship with that employee, or I don't like the word employee, I like team member, but with that team member, with that customer, or some other stakeholder, because they'll feel happier if they feel like you listen to them.
1: Right. You know, that's great advice with pitching, too, because I've seen some of my students get defensive in a pitch, and it's just like the worst thing ever, because the investors or the judges, if it's a competition, just shut down when you, right. when you get defensive. So that's great advice. I've always encouraged my students to, you know, to listen and absorb it and respond respectfully. And they don't have to take all the advice and they don't have and to. They even, yeah, and they shouldn't. Yeah.
0: Because you'll get conflicting advice. Yeah. But at the moment, yes, getting feedback is a gift. Right, Right. Because somebody has taken the time and energy to give you feedback. And usually it's good. I think one of the things that happens when people are being defensive is they tell you the reason why they did what they did. You know, I did this for this, 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 and this reason. And that's interesting, but it's completely irrelevant. It doesn't matter. The point is this person is saying that here's how I reacted to what you said, or here's what made me, you know... They may not be right. You know, it's certainly not always right. But by allowing them to give you the gift, they're impressed by that, right? You know, they're more likely to respond well to you the next time. You know, And obviously, you can't just do everything somebody says. You, know, you really do have to think about it. You don't have to think about it right then and there, but you, you absorb it and then over the, you know, whatever period of time is appropriate, you think about it, and you're not pleasing them. You're not doing it to please them. If, if you take their advice, you're doing it because they actually convinced you for whatever that they, they're right, right? Yeah, great
1: great advice. Well, Ted, this has been great. The time has just flown by. I've, I've learned a lot and really enjoyed our discussion today. I always like to wrap up our conversation with, with the same question and it's if there is one piece of advice that you could leave with our listeners, our audience, what would it be?
0: Well, if you are an entrepreneur, enjoy the process. If it's purgatory, don't do it, because you're going to be better at it if you love it, and you have to recognize there's ups and downs, but you just have to love the process that you're going through, because it's precious. You know, it's interesting when you have the big win, Very anticlimactic, actually. You know, there's joy with a big win, but you have to enjoy the process too. That would be my one piece of advice. And I do encourage anybody that happens to be listening to this, please reach out to me on LinkedIn, Ted, T-E-E-L-E, and if you have a question for me or anything, I'm more than happy to try to answer it. But I also think that getting involved with entrepreneurship programs like the University of Tampa, Rebecca's program is a wonderful thing because you get the benefit of a lot of experience so that you don't have to learn it with as much pain.
1: Ted, thank you so much. And thank you for your willingness to have our listeners reach out to you and really appreciate your time today. And I look forward to personally getting to know you more when we get the chance to get out of our bubbles here. So thank you again.
0: Thank you.